Please listen carefully. Perception. Architecture. Radio. Hello, everybody. This is episode number 5B of Perception Architecture Radio. Um, this is the second part of the episode with Dr. Robert Glover. Now, episode 5B is coming out after episode 6. And if you're into numbers and that, or just aware of them even, you, you're probably aware that that's not usually how they work. Usually they go sequentially upwards, especially in a context like this. But this time uh, it is going to work like this because I had to... Um, get another little quick one out about coronavirus because it was relevant to the time but I mean ultimately I can say that what happened was just a bit of a sluggish workflow on my part or a, maybe a lack of focus on um, getting this episode out so that's something I've been working on a bit more and um, Dr. Glover talks about that in this podcast actually he talks about bringing your A-game and he talks about uh, boundaries and he talks about lots of other useful things like really useful stuff um, not just for nice guy men, but also people pleasers in general, and just people in general. I really enjoyed the conversation with him. I thought I found his perspective to be really uh, grounded, and yeah, he's just the guy's smart. You know, he's got a lot of good stuff going on for him. And I really um, respect what he's been able to extract from the experiences of his life. So here is that second part of the Robert Glover conversation. So please do enjoy it. Oh, yeah. and I always, I always reverse what I call it. Sometimes I call it cooperative reciprocal systems. Sometimes I call it <laughs> reciprocal cooperative systems. Sometimes I add another adjective in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just it's, add, it's as, many, stuff, add as many adjectives as you want. It just keeps getting better. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds good. Uh, so this this neediness thing though, because it's, it's sometimes it's very difficult to get out of because sometimes people feel like they're just falling through the bottom and like they really have these these deep needs for love or these deep needs for um, just affection or, or support or something like that. Um, and it, just to stick with this metaphor of the the bucket for a while because I was I was quite interested in this and what, what you mentioned before about boundaries as well. Some of the most compassionate people that I've met have got really strong boundaries. Like they have really good relationships with their boundaries because they know what's okay and what's not okay. And somehow that allows them, it's almost like their bucket doesn't have any holes in it. So they, it just keeps filling up, which is a really inter, uh, interesting thing. And so I guess what my, if I was to kind of make a question out about it, be like, what do you, what do you think the relationship between boundaries and something like compassion or if you, so if you, if you have good strong boundaries and you can really then, uh, it's almost like the opposite of neediness. I'm able to, to give without, I, I would say compassion, a good definition of it is I'm able to give without needing anything in return. It's like, I'm just pouring good energy outwards. And there seems to be a lot of power in that as well. It seems like there's a, almost like a, a personal power to be, enjoyed from from that level of um well that, that kind of level of compassion i suppose or that that level of being able to hold your own boundaries and know what's okay and what's not okay and, and who you are um i don't know if there's a question to come from that well, but maybe I, I'll tell you what i, I actually have two i have two answers to go to your non-question okay all right great uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a pro at this i'm a pro at giving answers um so <laughs> 
let, let, let's, let's kind of put boundaries over here for a minute and kind of mm. back up just a little bit to something you said that, that I wanted to say something more about. It goes back to what we're talking about to the not needy. And then we'll come back to the boundaries because I agree with what you're saying about them. Mm. Um, another piece that I, I've really been looking at a lot um, just recently in my own life personally, but also um, seeing it with other people. And a lot of it goes back to this piece I was talking about of the cooperative reciprocal systems is that a lot of us to, to rip off an old country song, uh, go looking for love in all the wrong places because we're mistaken what love is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, without, you know, going way off a field of trying to define love, most of us get mistaken about what is love. And usually the mistakes we make about what is love usually go back to our childhood, go back to our family of, of the inadequate ways that our parents loved us. Now, so remember going back to Scott Peck's definition of road less traveled, that the way that parents instill a sense of lovableness in a child is by being attentive, responding to their needs in timely, judicious, and I add consistent ways. That is what makes a child feel lovable and valued. Now, Peck says this, and I agree with this. Uh, I, I've been a marriage and family therapist for over 30 years. I've worked with a lot of families. I've raised kids. Um, and, for example, you can tell a child, I love you, you know, a thousand times a day. And if, if their needs are not met in a timely, judicious, uh, and consistent way, the, the words will mean nothing. They will not feel loved. Right? You can tell your child, you can tell a child, oh, you are so amazing. You're so great. You're so special. You can tell them that a thousand times a day. But if, you know, their needs are not met in this timely, consistent, judicial uh, way, they're not going to feel loved. It's, it's, the words and, and the feelings won't connect. Hmm. So what I think happens is we go out looking for love and we, we get mistaken what it is. We think somebody wanting to have sex with us is love right. or somebody wanting to tell us their problems is love. Especially these are true for nice guys. Cause I know I thought if a woman wanted to tell me her problems, I was valuable. Uh, you know, I was special. Or if she, you know, wanted to have sex with me, I was special. And then I came to find out, no, women will tell their problems to anybody. And you know, <laughs> or, you know, a woman wanting to have sex with me has nothing to do with my lovableness. So we might go looking for appreciation or affection or validation or success or, you know, have a great body or make a lot of money, thinking all of these things translate into love, but they don't, um, you know, they don't fill the bucket in any consistent way, but we think they should, so which means we just got to keep trying to do those things that will make us feel lovable. You know, losing weight will never make another person love you more. It just, but it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you think, well, if I just lose weight and get in good shape, right. then I'll be more loved. No, you, you don't get any more loved by losing weight. Um, but we think we, or if I, you know, if I just get that promotion or if I just make enough money or if I drive enough car, a nice enough car, I'll get more love. Or if I just listen to enough women talk about their problems or enough people want to have sex with me, then I'll feel loved. But then you find out you don't. Right. Mm. So my sense is going back to these us consciously creating these cooperative reciprocal systems that once we start doing that, we can actually start asking, well, well, what are some of the basic needs and wants that I have? It's not about love. It's about basic needs and wants. Mm. And so, for example, you mentioned sex and affection. Well, OK, 
what can I do to increase, you know, my, the frequency that I have good sex or what, what can I do to be, you know, put myself in a situation to receive physical affection. We actually start asking ourselves those questions and taking steps that, that will help make that happen. But if we just focus on, well, if I just get laid, then, then everything will be okay. And yeah. it actually never works that way. But the more we're filling up all those buckets and not mistaking affection for love or sex for love, but if we're consistently meeting our needs in a way that feels valuable, we don't get so dependent on needing the sex or needing the affection. But another piece, and this is part of the boundary piece that we'll segue into, is that if, if we never invite affectionate people into our life, we're not going to feel much affection. If we never invite people who like sex and who like having sex with us into our life, we're not going to get much sex. And I, you know, it sounds so maybe simple and logical, but as a nice guy, I spent most of my adult life inviting women into my life who didn't like sex and trying to get them to want to have sex with me. I grew up in a family that was amazingly non-affectionate. My mother just turned 84. My father's been dead for 10 years. Um, and my mother is probably the least affectionate human being I know. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, when I, I, I try to be around her as much as I can, I live a couple thousand miles away, but she had a stroke back in November, so I try to visit her fairly frequently. Um, I give her hugs all the time. I tell her I love her all the time. I send her text messages and say, I love you. I send her little hearts. Um, and, and I get such a kick out of my wife because my wife, who is the most affectionate human being I've ever met, <laughs> you know, will even acknowledge, no, your, your, your mother isn't very affectionate. Your, your mother <laughs> doesn't. But she said, but I watch. Every time you hug your mother, she loves it. And every time you say, I love you to your mother, she says, I love you back. And so I've just let go of any covert contract and I, I just give affection freely mm. to my very non-affectionate mother. Um, and, and just know that, okay, what I did is because that felt normal when I was a younger person to be around non-affectionate people is that I tended to recreate that in my life and then wonder why nobody ever was affectionate with me. Right. Well, because I kept inviting people into my life, or not, who weren't particularly affectionate. And when I decided that, okay, I like affection. I like people who like to hold hands and kiss and say I love you and hug and, you know, be affectionate. Then all of a sudden, I started inviting those people into my life. And as I said, my wife is the most affectionate human being I know. And it's, mm. it's just her language of love to receive and express physical affection. And it's like, I'm in heaven because I love it as well. But I had to invite somebody into my life that was actually physically affectionate. If I kept inviting people like my mother into my life, I'd keep thinking, what's wrong with me? How come nobody wants to be affectionate right. with me? Yeah, but it has nothing to do with my lovableness. So we'll go back, fill your bucket up with all these resources and invite people into your life who want to give to you in the way that you want to receive and then work on whatever issues you have around receiving, which I've had to do as well because I'm not a very good receiver. It, may, it makes me anxious or feel guilty when people do nice things for me. Yeah. I've had to consciously work on that. Right. Is that is something that touches the, the kind of the, the unworthiness core? Like I, I don't deserve this kind of love or this kind of affection. It's like maybe I really want it and I really crave it, but 
then when I get close to it, then I start to all of these walls shoot up. Like maybe I, I'm not worthy of this kind of affection or worthy of getting even the things that I want. Well, there can be a lot of layers to it, I think. Uh, worthiness is one. It's not so much the card I play emotionally. Um, I think my cards around something like that, getting my needs met, are more like, oh, uh, if you give to me, I'll owe you something. Um, All right. Or if, if I have needs, that makes me too much like my father, who was a self-centered ass, and I don't want to be a self-centered ass, so I'll try not to have needs. Um, so I got value out of being needless and wantless. So now because I don't have needs and wants, you should value me because I'm not, you know, the self-centered ass. So it's not so much for me that I feel worthless. That is true. For, I know for a lot of people and we all have our own stories that get played out, but we have to address those stories. So, mm. so for example, um, when I, you know, in therapy years ago, when I realized Okay, I, I'm not a very good receiver. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of a couple of practices that I, that I worked on. One is probably 20 years ago uh, when I was in my second marriage, and that's when I started working on my nice guy issues. Uh, I, I was the giver, you know, the whole covert contract. I was giving yeah. gifts and nice things to my wife. And I remember one year I gave her a, a teddy bear for Valentine's Day. And she didn't seem to have, you know, strong response to it one way or another. And I asked her, well, did you like the teddy bear? And she said, well, did you, did you get that for me or get it for you? Did you give it to me for me or for you? And I had to think about it. And I thought, well, I did put a lot of time into it. I looked and searched for the perfect teddy bear. I thought you would really love it. You'd really be appreciative of me. And I said, I guess it probably was much more for me than it was for you. And she goes, well, that's that hose. That's that needy hose. And because of that needy hose, I just needed her to love it and appreciate it because I worked so hard to find the perfect teddy bear. Right. Um, yeah. And she said, so because of that, I don't know. I, I can't really feel anything about it. So uh, we were, we were in like a therapy group at the time, a couples therapy group. So we, we talked about that. And, and so out of that process, I made a decision to go on a giving moratorium. So for one year, you know, I talked about this with my then wife. For one year, I did not give her any gifts at all. No surprises, no Mother's Day cards, no birthday gifts, no Christmas, nothing. And every time I had the impulse to like buy her something or give her something or do something for her, I had to buy myself something or do something for me or give myself something. And that, you know, that may sound like a crazy assignment, but it transformed me in that then my giving became much more loving and judicious, not just caretaking like, love me, love me, love me, because I gave you all this great stuff. And it started filling my own bucket up. I am one of my own cooperative reciprocal systems, right? I take charge of filling my bucket up. If I need something, I get it, right? So that, that helped me practice receiving by actually me giving to me rather than giving to others. Um, another experience I had, um, one, after I got divorced in, in like 2003 and started dating, um, I dated a woman for a while. I, I met her because she sold me shoes. So she worked in a, a, a nice department store and, um, we started dating. She came over to my apartment one day and I'd, I'd done some laundry and left my clean clothes out on my couch. And she just walked in the door and just started folding my laundry. And I said, wait, 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 you don't need to fold my laundry. Stop. She goes, Oh, I, I <laughs> She goes, I actually like folding clothes. I'm really good at it. She says, remember, I, I work in uh, retail fashion sales. I fold clothes all the time. She says, I'm good. 
And I said, uh, okay. I thought, okay, wait a minute. She wants to give. It makes her feel good. I need to practice receiving. So I let her fold my laundry. And so after that, consciously, every time I did laundry, I left the clean clothes out on the couch. Knowing <laughs> as a gift to her and as a challenge to me. That was hard to do, actually. It was hard to leave the clothes out, kind of like, okay, my clothes are here. <laughs> and she never, she never like, why do you do that? She liked doing it. She said, I won't put them away, but I'll leave them in little stacks here, like on your couch or your bed. And I said, mm -hmm. that's okay. I won't put them away either because every time I see those stacks, I feel loved. Mm -hmm. And I did. I felt loved. But I had to let her do that, right? Right, yeah. If I didn't let her do it, I wouldn't get that sense of, hmm, that feels good when I look at those little stacks of neatly folded clothes. That was her expressing love for me. And it's a kind of a, a love that she's expressing that she feels good to do. It's not like, because the, the kind of expression you were talking about before, and I think this is a, an important distinction to make, is that when you, so like when you bought the teddy bear, it's like that was your way of expressing love but you, you needed something in return for it yeah. it wasn't just like you did it because hey this is great and i can i can give this and i want to do it and i don't really care if she likes it or not it's like i'm i really really want her validation or approval whereas the girl folding the clothes is like she just loves folding clothes and wants to show her affection that way mm -hmm. um, and she's not looking exactly for a compliment or anything like that and as you see the difference, one's a covert contract, one isn't. One's freely given with no strings attached, one has lots of strings attached. Yeah. And so the point is, is if we want to experience love, we have to practice receiving. We have to practice letting mm -hmm. people in, letting people love us, which we can segue then into boundaries, um, and which is a great subject. And I did not... I did not even know what a boundary was till I was in my 30s, in my second marriage, and already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy before, <laughs> I ever, before I'd ever heard the term boundary. And I, I mentioned that when I started working with, in therapy, going to therapy, um, to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife appreciate me more. Mm. The very first session I went to with a therapist I worked with for a while, very first session, she taught me about boundaries. She put a little string out on the ground, started talking about personal space and, and how boundaries work. And it's like, man, did she like just know I needed that? Or did she do that with like every client in the <laughs> first session? But I did need it. And what I tell people around boundaries, personal boundaries aren't about trying to get anybody else to be different. They're about getting us to be different. And healthy boundaries actually invite other people into higher consciousness. They're not just a matter of saying, stop, or don't do that, or you know, whatever. And the most important piece for me that I teach people around boundaries is that boundaries are what allow people to get close to us. Now, for example, Interesting. I, I tell people, I'll come, I'll come back and give an illustration of that. I tell people, you're an adult. You get to be the decider of who comes into your space, what they get to do while they're in your space, how long they get to stay, when it's time for them to leave. You are the, as an adult, you know, you're the gatekeeper of your space. That's what adults do. Children don't do that because they're little and everybody else is bigger. So the big people get to do whatever they want to the little people. And mm -hmm. since we were all little people at one time, we grow up being boundaryless because nobody ever taught us. You can say no, you can say stop, you can say here's what I want. So, and because if it wasn't what the big people wanted, they'd say, shut up or spank you or smack you or ignore you and do what they wanted to do. 
Yeah, whatever. So when we get to be adults, we have to learn to set boundaries. Now, I tell people boundaries are like, you know, if you're driving in your car, you're on a highway. They are the stoplights, the stop signs, the yield signs, the, the speed limits, the, you know, the, 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 the lines or the markers on the road. They are the things that allow a lot of cars to coexist in close proximity without crashing into each other all the time. Okay? Mm. Boundaries are a good thing. They, they, help, they help manage how people can coexist with each other. So, for example, boundaries are what allow people to get close to us. Because if you think about it, if you don't have boundaries, if you have no consciousness of personal boundaries, um, your choices are either to let people come in and do whatever they want to you, which could be abusive or they might use you or hurt you, or you got to build really big walls to keep them away from you, or you have to become really unavailable and socially isolated. Those yeah. are you know, basic three choices. Let people hurt you, build big walls that don't let anybody get close to you, or be socially isolated. Those are your choices. But boundaries allow people to get close to you because you, you can decide, yeah, those people, I don't want them so close to me, but this person, I do. This person, they can get real close to me. I'll, I'll get naked with this person or I'll reveal myself to this person. Mm -hmm. But even with this person, I'm not going to let them hurt me or scold me or be critical of me or shame me. If they do, I'll need to say to them, hey, no. You, you don't get to shame me or you don't get to be critical of me. Or if you keep doing that, you won't get to hang around me. Or even like, okay, I've hung around this person for a little while now. I need some space. I need my own time. I need to go hang out with some other people. Or I need to go work. You can say, okay, it's time for my – that is us using our boundaries to like direct traffic to where we can let people close, let them in. We can move closer, move further. Um, you know, we have groups of people around us, one person, we can be alone, all of those things. And, and there's a fluidity to it that you don't have if you're just yeah. letting everybody come in and abuse you or if you just have a big wall built up or if you're just isolating yourself and avoiding people altogether. So the boundaries are and, – and, you know, and it may take a lifetime to really get good at setting them. I'm, I'm still learning how to, get, how to set them well after 25 years of practicing. But they are beautiful in that they do let people get close to you and, and, and let you feel safe enough to be vulnerable and open with people. No, it's interesting. It, it kind of takes me to a metaphor I heard once of something like the kids can play in the playground because they have a, a wall around the playground. It's like the safe zone. It's the container that they can go in and, and just do whatever they want. And they know that, you know, the outside isn't going to come and consume them or swallow them. I think yeah, I've, I've heard that same metaphor and I love it. They, I, I, don't know the exa I don't know if any of these examples you hear are ever accurate, but it's like, you know, there's a playground with a fence around it and the kids right. played in the entire playground. They, they'd walk right up next to the fence. Yeah. There was a busy highway out there, you know, people walking by, but they felt safe. And mm -hmm. somebody thought, well, kids don't need fences. Fences are bad for kids. So somebody came and took the fence down on the playground. And then the kids all played real close to each other in the middle of the playground and never ventured out. <laughs> because, and whether that's a true story, I, I, I was a preacher for eight years. And so, you know, preachers tell lots of stories that may or may not be true, but they make a point, you know. So, um, yeah, we, people do feel safe when we have boundaries. Mm -hmm. And people – you know, a lot of times working with nice guys, when I talk about boundaries, nice guys have this fear. Well, if I set a boundary with my girlfriend or my wife or my mother, yeah. then they're going to have this big negative reaction. 
Um, they might. Yeah, they might. Um, but often they don't. Uh, and sometimes they push against it or resist it a little bit because it's new. It's unexpected. And once they get used to it, they go, oh, yeah, that, that does make sense. You know, mm. I, shouldn't, I shouldn't just drop in unannounced or, you know, I shouldn't tell him he's a worthless excuse for a human being. You know, maybe I should <laughs> stop doing that. Um, and sometimes people do just keep pushing through them. And um, I call them professional boundary invaders. And my advice is if over time you start setting clear, loving, conscious, inducing boundaries and people like keep attacking you, like you're doing something wrong, like you're victimizing them for having a boundary that says, no, stop. Um, I, I suggest you don't hang around those people. And that's part of setting boundaries as well is deciding there's certain people on this planet that, don't make your life better and you're yeah. better off not hanging around them. And unfortunately, sometimes those people are mom or dad or a sibling or a person you're married to, but sometimes <laughs> it is better to get away from those people. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that this thought about boundaries, because I think one of the things, um, the way we're talking, I can relate it very much um, to the dynamic between like order and chaos or something like that where on the outside of the fence there is all kinds of chaos and on, then there's a little bit of order that kind of keeps it neat and tidy. And one of the things that you tend to find with people who have good boundaries and strong boundaries is that they just feel solid. It's like you know where you stand with them. There's not this yeah. this kind of amorphous like, well, am I safe here? Am I If I push down here, do I have something to stand on? And it's just like maybe that's where this feeling of compassion can emanate from them or you just feel a sense of, I don't know, there's some sense of solidarity or like they're, they're honest, they're truthful. Um, and I think this is something that nice guys typically struggle with quite a lot um, because of the shame and fear of, and if, if I do this, if I set these boundaries, maybe I'm not going to be loved in the way that I want to be loved or something like that. I, I think you, you, I think it's a really good analysis on your part that um, having those boundaries having our reciprocal systems, valuing ourselves, taking good care of ourselves, really opens us up to love more deeply, to have greater compassion. Like for example, I, 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 I hear this frequently when people find out I've written a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy, you know, <laughs> that, I, that, that I teach men to be not nice. Um, and people go, but you actually seem like a nice guy. You know, you seem, you know, like a decent human being. And I said, well, <laughs> I, I would hope that that is your impression of me, is that I'm a decent human being. I, you know, I hope that as you're just experiencing me having a conversation or walking the planet, that your impression is that this person is a decent human being. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, the distinction I make between that and the nice guy is, goes back to the nice guy's covert contracts, to his toxic shame, to his giving to get, to his trying to be something he's not, to be loved, to hiding things about him. That's the nice guy in capital letters, capital N, capital G. But I would hope that doing what I call nice guy recovery will make you more loving, more compassionate, more open, more approachable, mm. more generous, um, and, and, and just improve who you are. Now, I, I hate to even use that word because yeah. I, when I, I, about two years ago, my, my publisher said, well, you know, we want to put out 
an updated version of No More Mr. Nice Guy. And they said, do you want to, do you want to revise it or add anything? And I said, no, not really. I'll just write some more books. And mm. I said, but, but let, let, let's just like clean it up, you know, clean up any typos and you know, anything I'll write a, a, a new, um, a new dedication. And how about I write a forward for it? And so in the forward, I wrote about what I'd learned in the last 15 years, both in my own personal life and working with nice guys. And I concluded the forward that, um, really something that I saw even more clearly when I wrote the book 20 years ago, that recovering from the nice guy syndrome is not becoming a different person. It's not about becoming a better person. Uh, it's not about becoming a more lovable person. It's about becoming more you. Yeah, it's about, it's about, about discovering you, embracing you, loving you, you know, putting you out there into the world, warts and all, imperfections and all, human frailties and all, and loving every, every bit of yourself. So um, I, I would hope that as people are doing the nice guy recovery, it's not like, and, you know, ironically, when, when I was shopping the book to get it published 25 years ago, a lot of publishing companies said, oh, we like the book, but our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book, especially one that tells them they're kind of a loser. And I said, you, you don't know the men I work with. The men I work with really do want to be good people. That's, that's why they're trying hard to be good because they, they want to be good people. Unfortunately, it's coming from a paradigm that says I'm flawed and broken and unlovable, so I got to be good. Um, and so like a lot of nice guys, when they first get the book, they go, oh, yeah, I get that being a nice guy doesn't work. Now, if I become an integrated male, then I'll be loved and liked and get my <laughs> And And it takes a little while to realize no, let's just work at being ourselves. Let's just work mm -hmm. at being who we are. Not everybody's going to like us. You know, it's still going to be our job to make sure we get our needs met. Um, we're not going to have a smooth problem, free life. But if, if we can learn to like us and love us and just present that person to the world, that person's going to be trustworthy. That person's going to be authentic. That person's going to be honest. That person's going to be generous. That person's going to be open to love and giving of love. And, um, you know, that's a beautiful person. Yeah, it's, that's, this is the kind of people we need more of in the world, it seems. I think one of the, so you talk a little bit in the book about nice guys not fulfilling their potential. And it sounds like what you're talking about then is like there's a, there's a potential you that you could be. And um, if you work through this stuff, you could be more you, which is kind of what you're, you're here to be anyway. And you can get rid of all the stuff that's not you and all the stuff that's kind of holding you back and you being essentially you um, or the most you that you could be is kind of like nice, uh, kind of like uh, fulfilling your potential. Yeah. You know, when, when I wrote the book, the, the last chapter in the book kind of hits on that. And that was actually, you know, after, um, my, my agent who took the book on said, I really like it. I think it needs one more chapter. So we added that last chapter. And then actually while, um, while the book was in process about to be published, it was published by Barnes and Noble, who at that time was tried to publish books. Now they don't even sell books because they just went bankrupt and got bought out. But anyway, back then they, they were the big deal. Um, and so they, they had me write a class. They said, we want you to write a class, an eight week online class based on no more Mr. Nice Guy, but don't just rehash it, do an application of it. And then you can teach it online on their online university. So I taught, I, I developed while the, you know, 
the book was about to come out. I, I was working on developing this class, and I still teach it to this day, um, called Nice Guys Don't Finish Last, They Rot in Middle Management. <laughs> and, got, and the premise is that nice guys are often good at being good because we're pretty conscientious and we want approval. So we're, we're, we, we, we do often well enough, but we don't usually like exceed and, and just flourish and blossom mm. because of a number of things, seeking people's approval. Okay. Uh, people don't usually accomplish great things while they're playing to the crowd. You know, they, they, they accomplish great things when they're true to themselves and they bring their A game. Um, our fear of, of risk, of looking foolish, of making a mistake, of doing the wrong thing, that can get in the way. Um, that need for external validation. Um, our caretaking, where we're constantly, you know, tending to everybody else and not focusing on our passion and purpose. And, and a lot of it just comes down to, it's really scary to live up to your full potential. It's, it's scary. It's kind of rare, rare. Yeah. And, um, and nice guys tend to want to keep doing what feels safe and familiar. So doing this nice guy work, and, and, I, and I'm still doing this, and I'm still seeing it, this in my own life. Like I say, at 63, I'm, I'm watching my life continue to blossom and flourish um, as I get out of my own way, as I, I start just creating what's true to my heart and, and my inspiration. And I see my life keep getting better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing more books. Um, financially, I'm doing better. I seem to have more love in my life. I have lots of great adventures. Mm -hmm. I have lots of, of blessings in my life. And I think a lot of that comes because I've let them in, number one. And number two, um, I've been bringing my A game. I, I, I you know, I've, I've faced mm -hmm. a lot of fears and, and um, I, I've created a discipline for myself and a support system that supports me and holds me accountable for living up to my potential. It's, it's a commitment I've made that I'm not going to let my fears and my self-limiting beliefs and my anxieties kind of subvert me from making a difference in the world. Uh, I know that no more Mr. Nice Guy has made a huge difference in the world. I, I know that, that many thousands of people have, have had changed lives because of it. And I've got more books in me that, that need written. Well, what if my fear gets in the way and I never write another book? Okay, that's fine. But when I recognize that I'm, I'm here, you know, perhaps with a purpose or passion, I don't get real, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word, metaphysical about all of that. Um, right. But I seem to have a certain gift and ability. And if I'm not using that and, and yeah. just bringing my A game to that, I, I'm cheating me. I'm cheating my family. I'm cheating the world. Yeah. So, um, it's going to consume I, you and eat you from the inside. Yeah. It, it, and it will. And I couldn't be happier doing what I'm doing. You know, I get up, I write, I, I have my connections. I have, I have all my reciprocal cooperative systems that bless my life. Um, you know, I teach, I do seminars, I do what I love and I think it makes a difference. And I would be, I would be cheating the world if I wasn't fully, embracing and doing what I love and what I was put here to do. Mm. Well, the thing that you mentioned about um, the rarefied air and like being fully you and bringing fully you to the, the world is, it's a, it is a, a scary thing. I think people are, are very much afraid of that. And I think there's that very um, well used maxim of like, it's not the darkness, but it's the light inside of you that you're afraid of mm -hmm. something like that. And I think one of the things that, well, in, in your book, there was another one of these lines where I was like, oh, God, 
And it, I think it was the uh, nice guys are wimps. And this is something that I've really tried to, to kind of counter my whole life. So um, just a, a brief bit about my history. I, I grew up and I felt very soft when I was young. Like I, I didn't feel like I was strong or brave or anything like that. And so as I grew up, then I moved into mixed martial arts and I um, started uh, doing kickboxing and things like that because I wanted to try to overcome this you know, and, and feel more strength, more power and, you know, be tougher than my, the, the, the demons that I was fighting inside my, my head. Yeah. Um, well, physically it kind of worked out okay, but still inside there was this, um, this feeling of like, I'm just, I'm really afraid of conflict. Like I'm really afraid of confrontation and physical stuff. Now I'm getting to the point where I could maybe handle it a bit better, but still inside, like the things that terrified me were like lack of, like not being approved of these kinds of things. And so yeah, reading this line of like nice guys are wimps. That was another one of those ones where I had to just, <laughs> I had to come back to it a second time. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just, just absorb that, receive it and you know, let it, let it naturally do its work. It's okay. It's okay to kind of do that. Um, and, and, and what if we could actually even just, accept that and, and yeah it, right because I, I i know at least one place in the book um this, i mean like i said this was years and years and years ago but i still remember um there's I, I i describe a scene in the book with with my second wife elizabeth who i was with when i wrote the book um we'd had this big fight i remember we were, we were like in the bathroom off our master bedroom and, and like you know and she went off on me which she had a tendency to do and called me all kinds of things and including a whip and uh, and and she left and she came back. I, I remember I stayed in the bathroom. I was kind of crying and <laughs> watching my, blah, 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 you know, and she walked back in and, and she did something that she almost never did in 14 years of marriage. She apologized. That was not her <laughs> strong suit. And, um, she, she said, I'm, I'm sorry for saying those things and for calling you a wimp. And I just looked at her and I said, actually, that was the most honest thing that you said. <laughs> I said, you know, I'm in here crying my eyes out. I, so I think maybe you were right. You know, I, I, I can be a wimp. So I, I'm like you. I don't like conflict. Um, I think probably the last two or three relationships I've been in with women, that it, as my mother got to know them, my mother seemed to like to reveal things about me as a child. And <laughs> she, she would say, she's told all these women, you know, Bobby never did like conflict. And I thought, well, who the fuck does? You know, <laughs> no, I don't like conflict. Why? I mean, can't we just talk about it and get it done? Why do we have to have conflict? And, you know, again, because my dad was pretty conflictual and my mother always kind of walked on eggshells to make him happy. And I did as a kid, too. Um, and so, no, I'm, I'm not big into conflict. Um, I, I'm not a fighter by nature. I'm not an alpha personality. Um, mm. my, my wife, bless her heart, you know, Grew up in eight of 10 kids in poverty in Guadalajara, Mexico. Dad was an alcoholic. Her older sister beat her literally regularly until she was like 16 and told her, if you ever do it again, you know, I'll, 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 I'll beat the shit out of you. She, she had to fight with neighbor kids. She's been violated and molested. And, and I mean, just tough. And, and yeah. she's, she's a tough cookie. She had to be tough. Um, you know, and she, she goes to exercise class every day. She's a gym rat. She has my thigh. Um, she's a lefty. I, I won't start a fight with her. Um, <laughs> she, she, in every way conceivable, she, she's tougher than me. And, um, 
you know, and I tell her, you know, in some ways she's my role model for where the places I need to toughen up and mm-hmm. need to be willing to have conflict and stand up for myself and, and deal with things. But she also says I'm her role model for teaching her how, how to be calmer and more patient and uh, more open hearted. And I love her for the ways that she is. But she kind of doesn't like the fact that she has to be so tough. And she loves me for being this, this kinder, gentler type person. And I'm thinking, well, I should be tougher. Well, how about if we just accept? Okay, this is how I am. Um, I'm, I could be kind of a wimp, you know. I, can I love that about me? Can I love that part of me that would rather not have conflict? Can I love that part of, about me that uh, doesn't go looking for a fight? Can I love that part about me that would still f- stand up and go to the floor for anybody that threatened my family i would um but i would try to find some other solution first that's me okay so we can love all parts about ourselves even those parts that might have a negative connotation like like being a wimp um okay you know and i know i can stand up when i have yeah. when it's the time but, to stand up you see so there's a there's a few a few things that i'm thinking about that and uh, one of them I was wondering uh, when you were talking about the kind of the, the needs and the wants and um, getting nice guys to identify their their feelings because a lot of times they're kind of out of touch with their feelings. And then um, I, and I wondered, did you use any kind of linguistic structures? Like uh, I know nonviolent communication is good at um, helping people to identify what they're feeling and what their needs are that are kind of driving these feelings. And also it doesn't, it, it kind of like promotes a, a consciousness that doesn't necessarily label things as like, well, this guy's a wimp or this guy's good or this guy's bad. And then once you kind of arrive at that consciousness, then it's like, yeah, it's, it's fine to be a wimp because it's just a word. What is really happening underneath is that I'm feeling afraid and I have needs for security and support or safety or something like that. I was wondering if you used yeah. any kind of, you know, I, I, I really honestly just came into contact with uh, um, nonviolent communication. I, I'd, I'd like heard of it at times in the mm-hmm. past, but it's really only been the last couple of years that, um, uh, you know, I really kind of had it explained to me more in depth. And, and I mm-hmm. like it as a communication style. Um, I, 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 think, I think words can be really important and, and mm-hmm. how we use them. So, for example, what I typically do when I'm working with people I, t- I tell them to pay attention to their emotionally laden language yeah. because the, the, that, that emotionally laden, charge yeah, it. that has a charge to it. So for example, you know, a guy says, well, you know, she, she shot me down, you know, mm-hmm. well, no, she had low interest in going out with you. You know, she said no to your request to go on a date. She didn't mm-hmm. shoot you down, but That's your, awesome. your language of she shot you down um, you know, all of a sudden takes on this real emotional world of itself. And so oftentimes in, in therapy and in groups, when I'm working with people that have this tendency to use a lot of emotionally laden language uh, and buy into it as, as it, it is the story, it is reality. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll do a little uh, exercise with them and I'll say, okay, I'm going to have you tell me the story of this emotional event, um, using which they're feeling kind of negative or done to or victimized. Um, and I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you tell it to me in two ways. Um, the first way is I'm going to have you tell it to me as uh, an editorial. 
the, you know, that you're going to editorialize this story. A lot of emotionally laden language. Um, you know, well, you know, this situation, you know, this guy was being a real jerk and, you know, and he went off on this other person and blah, you know, editorialize the hell out of it. Read, you know, whatever intent or motive into it you want. Then after telling the story with all the emotional language, I said, now tell it to me like a news reporter. Give me the facts, the who, the what, the hair, the where, and the how, without intention, speculation, motive, just what can be observable in the situation. Um, well, a guy was walking down the street, and he turned around and punched a guy. Mm. That's it. That's all you know. Now, that's a lot different story than all of, you know, the, the speculation and everything. Or, yeah. you know, if we bring it to the dating scenario, you know, the editorial is, you know, you know Robert, you know, bought this woman drinks and he was trying to impress her and he listened to her tell her stories and she seemed really interested in him and she touched his arm a lot. And Robert was thinking how great it would be. Maybe, you know, if she was his girlfriend and he thought she was really sexy and, you know, he was doing his best to impress her and, you know, and this and that. And then when he, you know, finally did ask her out, she, you know, she shot him down and she walked away from him and he left standing there looking like a fool. Right. <laughs> All right. Or the news story is uh, Robert met a woman at a bar. They had a couple drinks together. He asked her out. She said no. And nobody died. <laughs> <laughs> nobody had died. Nobody had died. Nobody got shot, killed. You know, nobody got drink thrown in their face. You know, just, right. she said no. Um, and yeah, I tell you what, life gets a lot easier mm. if, you know, or somebody told me recently the way they like to say it is, you know, um, uh, give me the news, not the weather. Uh, don't give me the weather report. So, yeah, you know, if we cut out the weather report and just stick to the news, yeah, shit happens in life. It isn't always what we want. It doesn't always go the way we want. But it's usually not nearly as dramatic as we turn it into be when we make it as being about ourselves. So, okay, you know, Robert met a woman at the bar, bought her a couple of drinks. He asked her for her phone number. She said no. Uh, Robert continued to have a good night. <laughs> You know, it, it doesn't have to be this big drama thing. Right. So, um, so I agree with you. Language can be really important. And if we can learn to drop the drama uh, from our language, we can communicate more clearly. And, and I know I, I had an experience just recently, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, as I said, my, my mother had a stroke. Uh, a few months ago and, and then had actually gone back in the hospital for a different reason. This was about a month ago. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm worried about her. She, you know, when she, when she does reply to my messages, says she's weak, she's not sleeping well. I thought I, I'm going to go up and just pay her a visit. I, and I told my wife that, about my thoughts and my plans and, you know, she thought that was a good idea. And so I flew up from Puerto Vallarta where I live up to Seattle to spend six, seven days with my mom. And I was glad I went. I think she needed someone to check on her. Her refrigerator was empty. She, she wasn't taking very good care of herself. And, and uh, you know, we went for a lot of walks. I put a lot of food in her fridge, you know, and by the time I left, she was in much better shape. Um, but when I got, but while I was gone, my wife seemed really cool towards me. We usually send a lot of text messages, but they were, her messages were fairly unaffectionate and flat. Now, I'm not going to use any emotionally laden words, but I could tell she was distant and something was bothering her. Um, mm. And I watched my tendency to make a story out of that, right? And all I did is I just kept repeating to myself, my wife is not feeling sufficiently loved by me. 
I didn't make it into a story. Well, this or that, or, you know, she was projecting her stuff or I didn't do anything wrong or blah, you know, not nothing. I, uh, my mind wanted to at times. And every time my mind wanted to create a dramatic story about my wife seeming distant while I was gone, um, I just repeated to myself, my wife is not feeling sufficiently loved by me. So when I got back home and we were able to have a conversation about it, I said, you know, it seemed that you were not feeling sufficiently loved by me. And she then told me two things that made her feel not sufficiently loved. I acknowledged both of them that I could see why that would make her feel not sufficiently loved. And I said, I will try to be more attentive to those things in the future. And mm -hmm. after a week of her seeming distant, but me not reacting and just asking, Okay, you seem to not feel sufficiently loved. She told me two things. I listened, I acknowledged, and we got through it like in 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, it, that's all it took. And then like, you know, from there on out, she was amazingly her affectionate self and close and physical and hugging and kissing and saying sweet things. It just like turned like that because I didn't turn it into a dramatic story. I, I, I forced myself to keep it simple. Mm. Yeah, it almost sounds like a, a kind of uh, we can get addicted to the drama of it because it's something interesting that's happening. Maybe there's not enough kind of interesting or fulfilling things <laughs> in our lives that are happening. And so you create these kind of dramas so you can just so something's happening so it's not boring. Um, and um, yeah, it, it really sounds like once you break that down or kind of kick that addiction and you just use language you know in a way that is that you're in a better relationship with reality instead of what's going on in your your head it's like you can actually get down to what's happening and it's it's not such a big deal after all that it, it amazed me how quickly we got through it and how quickly <laughs> she wanted to feel close to me again that she yeah. wanted to, to open up to to you know feelings yeah, right. of yeah. It, it kind of blew me away like wow is that easy? <laughs> you mean if I if I if I can manage my storytelling and projections and story, you know drama a little better, you know maybe we get through stuff a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, this is a work in progress. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we uh, there's so many more things I would love to talk to you about here. Um, I think we're probably running over by a little bit, and I want to kind of make an effort to respect your time here, even though I also want to kind of pick your brains about so many more things. Um, well, you know, we, we can do this again. Yeah, well, I would like that. I, I still have about, say, 60% of the questions that I never even got to. I'm spinning off of the things that you were talking about. So that was super interesting. Um, I, do you have any final thoughts or final words to say on anything? Any messages you'd like to, to send? I know you just got a new book out, um, and that was... I just found that today. I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for, for plugging that. Um, you know, yeah, you know, you, if you're people listening to this, if they're interested in you know, anything we've talked about, sure, check out No More Mr. Nice Guy. My, my new book just came out this month. It's available right now. It's an ebook on Amazon, Dating Essentials for Men. And it came to be written exactly the same way No More Mr. Nice Guy did. When I got divorced in my late 40s, uh, 16, 17 years ago, I didn't know how to date. I had to learn how to date and I tried to approach it, uh, you know, by being authentic and real and myself and just learning to let me, this filled up me, mm. attract good people to me. And it's kind of a different concept to what a lot of the dating advice is out there for men. 
Um, so yeah, if you know, check out Dating Essentials for Men. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Um, if they want to, you know, come find my website. Just go to drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com, or datingessentialsformen.com. Um, uh -huh. go, you know, go, go poke around both of them and see if anything looks interesting. Plenty of good material there. Um, is there anything, finally, that you would say, just quickly to, <laughs> I almost forgot that we were doing a podcast for socially anxious people. Is there anything uh, quickly you would say? Uh, to oh, should, should, we give, should we give them away before we wrap up? <laughs> Sorry, we talked about no more Mr. Nice Guy stuff for the whole podcast. But <laughs> yeah, if there's something, um, I, I don't know if there's anything you would say to them. I mean, I think a lot of the well, stuff we talked about applies. Well, well, let me just say one thing. Um, two things. I'll say two things. Um, I, I, I am by nature an emotional introvert. I, I didn't know that for most of my life. I, I get recharged in isolation, spending alone time. But I do like being around people, but I get overwhelmed and tired easily uh, in crowds. I actually do better standing up on a stage talking to an audience than I do in small groups and parties, uh, mainly because of the control factor. I have more control when I'm up on the stage. Um, and, and so I guess the point I want to make is that most people, I, I've worked with a lot of people, especially you know, when I work around dating concept, work with a lot of people who identify as being socially anxious, um, introverted, um, and, and they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, mm. and, and it's kind of like one piece that I see with people that identify in this way. It almost becomes like their burden to bear, kind of like their identity, their, 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 right. their, 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 almost their mask that they wear. Well, I'm socially anxious, therefore, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm introverted, therefore, fill in the blank. Kind of like, well, because I've got this thing, I can't really be expected to, you know, like, do these other things like right, right, almost like a protection, like, like like talk to people or go to parties or you know walk up and introduce myself to someone or whatever, and and the, and I don't want to minimize it because it's real, but the point is everybody has to challenge themselves in life, hmm. and maybe some people have more challenges than others. Probably I'm I'm, I'm probably you know. Maybe I don't have as many challenges as, as another person. Somebody maybe that's in a wheelchair or, you know, has, you know, something else going on. I, well, everybody has challenges. So instead of saying, well, because I have this thing, I can't, um, maybe say, okay, I have this thing and it's a challenge and I, and I can't. I can try. Mm -hmm. I can work at it. Everybody, everybody has to lean in to, to their challenge. Everybody, if they really want to, to be themselves and have what they want in life and live up to their potential has to get out of their comfort zone and feel uncomfortable or anxious periodically, everybody. And so the people that say, well, I've got this thing or I've got that thing. Okay. All right. You do. I, I'm a wimp by the way. I've got that thing. <laughs> and I still have to challenge myself. I still have to deal with conflict sometimes, even though it, it, it makes me pretty anxious. But I still have to, okay? So I, I would say don't let how you've identified yourself be you, all right? Mm. It's, just, it's, just a, it's just a piece. It's just a thing. Don't let it be you. Um, get out of your comfort zone anyway. And then the second piece I'll add is don't do it alone. Um, mm. Anything we try to do alone is going to be a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging. Surround yourself with good people. Get a coach, get a therapist, get a wing buddy or, you know, wing man, get a buddy, get, you know, get, get, 
you know, go to a 12 step program, you know, go to meet up, go, you know, take a Dale Carnegie course, go, don't try to do it alone. Go connect with other people and, and practice these life skills um, with other people and, and maybe with people who've, who've, are a little bit further ahead than you and they can teach you what they've learned along the way. So don't try to figure it out alone. That's way too much work. Uh, go, go get good help. Yeah. Oh, powerful words there. Well, it's been an absolute privilege for me to speak to you today. So thank you so much. Um, you've definitely affected my life in massively positive ways that you, you're unaware of and, you know, thousands, maybe millions of people out there as well. So, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Robert Glover, for being on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I, I had a great time and look forward to doing it again. Excellent. Me too. All right. Take care. Perception. Architecture. Radio. All right. There we go. That was a conversation between me and Dr. Robert Glover. The second half of a conversation between me and Dr. Robert Glover. I really enjoyed that conversation. I just I found it to be so insightful and filled with so many good ideas about how you can structure your psychology to love more touch on a few of them there a few of the things that he mentioned um one of the things that i really liked that he talked about was boundaries and how boundaries let people love you and i really liked his analogy when he's talking about the traffic and i've just i find that to be so true it's like you know we have this experience of love and this feeling of love and this thing that we want to um, give and share and receive and all of that and it, it can be really difficult if you don't know how to but l- love can be uh, it can be quite consuming you know it can be really chaotic and it can be really messy and if you don't have clear and solid boundaries about how you direct it it can just be this intense fireball <laughs> maybe something like that maybe that's a good way to describe it but I found that to be really true in my own experience it's like good boundaries really seem to be about showing up for yourself and really being connected to yourself in each moment so you can determine what's okay and what's not okay to direct and um, channel the flow of love and support the flow of love in the ways that it and wishes to be supported in the world and so really what I get from his talking about boundaries is that like a deep connection with yourself and and an awareness of where you are and an okayness with having wants and having needs and expressing them and wanting to take like taking responsibility for those wants and needs uh, to get them met and at the same time being responsible to other people's wants and needs not for but to response uh, to other people's wants and needs which is part of the non-violent communication protocol it's like we're responsible to each other not for each other obviously unless you're a parent then some of that changes but you know, it's good to establish those um, kind of boundary structures with people that you are um, taking care of because then that teaches them. I mean, small people, little people like children and that. Um, then that teaches them it's okay to have boundaries and where lines are. And it, I really thought his analogy about the traffic lights and how, you know, if cars are just driving around anywhere, it's chaos and there's, there's, things can crash and... Um, cause a bit of a mess so I found that to be really really useful for me and I find myself when I am setting boundaries or I'm getting into um, finding out what they are there can be a degree of discomfort with that but when I'm clear on them and clear with people 
And that doesn't mean that they're going to be this that way forever. Um, I just find myself it so much more able to relax and open up. Like I can really, I feel it's like it's almost like you feel safe because you're not going to get lost in the chaos and in the melee of um, of love without any kind of form or structure to hold it. And so, I actually find that the boundaries do help me feel or practicing the exercise of. Um, setting boundaries and negotiating and discussing boundaries with other people is like it's really useful i really feel a lot safer to kind of open up and and love more and give and receive more love which is uh really ultimately what things are about so that was great uh he talked about emotionally laden language which i thought was a really interesting point um because we can tend to describe our inner world as if we're in some kind of theatrical play and I'm very much guilty of this myself partly because I'm a bit of a linguist and I like to play around with words and you know see how things sound and and work on my um, articulation that was a bit ironic but you know what I mean my articulation just like to work on articulating things in a more precise way I find that to be quite a a compelling direction for me Uh, so yeah, emotionally laden language really can trick your brain into believing that something was worse than it actually is or more distressing than it actually is. And then your brain starts to create a little bubble around that thing and says, okay, well, don't go there because that was really bad. It's like, I think the example he used is like, she shot me down instead of, um, I asked her uh, if she'd like to go out for a drink and she said no. It's like the second one is way less charged and I think being precise in your speech and being articulate and really getting in depth with the language that you use is really really useful because you you don't really you're not really aware of how the how the way that you use language really affects the structure of your thinking which affects your emotional state uh, and I just I find it so valuable to notice and be aware of how and where you use language and the feeling that that creates in your body and the associations that 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 then comes out with Um, like I associate this deep feeling with this thing and that directs my behavior in a way that may or may not be beneficial to me Um, and once I start to take a bit of responsibility for the way that I'm using language and really trying to get into it then I actually have a bit more control and direction over my associations um at least that's the way that it appears uh so i really liked that point bringing your a game i thought that was a great one uh, that's something i'm trying to do a bit more with these podcasts and just get yeah, just tidy things up a bit make things a little bit more efficient in the process and with varying degrees of success and so um one hand for encouragement and the other one for compassion it's like okay you didn't quite do that there, and so I'm not gonna like beat up on you or like give you a I don't know what the expression would be. I'm just I'm not gonna kind of ride you into the ground so hard that you never feel like getting up and trying anything again. But at the same time, you know, how could I entice you to you know work a little bit more, a little bit more efficiently? And I think a good way to approach that is certainly curiosity. Um, and I'm finding with making these videos and these podcasts, that's really, um, I relax the rules a little bit. So I have more freedom to 
um, find out how to best bring my A game, which is really um, kind of cool. And it's like not being really hard on yourself when you make some mistakes. It's like, well, how about this for a context? I'm going to um, give myself the freedom to fail forward and give myself the freedom to make mistakes and try to figure things out through the process of making mistakes. And it's okay if I put something out like this or like this. And, you know, those are real decisions that you can actually make within yourself to kind of ease up. And if you're willing to feel a few feelings around it and like be present with those feelings, then you can actually start to make that work for you. And well, that's the journey that I'm on. And um, I feel good about it. So maybe you could feel good about it too if that was the journey you wanted to take or not. I don't know whatever, do what you want. But here's another thing that he talked about that was cool. Lean into your challenge. I like this. I like this a lot. I like the idea of being presented with something and just, it's like softening into it. George talked about that a lot on one of the earlier podcasts. It's like leaning into things a little bit, being willing to feel anxiety. And that actually rewires your brain for courage. It's like, you lean into the challenge a little bit, just the right amount, you know, the amount that you think you could manage. And it might be very small, you know, especially if you break things down and you just start to lean into that first little small bit. Um, I think Jordan Peterson had some advice on that at one point where he's like, find what's the thing that you've been putting off that you know that you should be doing. And it's like, see if you can sit down with that thing for 15 seconds you know, because maybe you've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and you feel so uncomfortable about it. It's become this huge thing in your subconscious. Whereas actually, if you just sat down and looked at it for 15 seconds, you could probably manage that. You could probably keep yourself focused on the thing for at least 15 seconds. Then you take a break and you come back and maybe you do another 15 seconds or maybe you do 30 seconds or maybe you even do five minutes. Oh my God, five minutes looking at the problem and looking at it from the perspective of, um, I guess, okayness, like relaxation, like relaxing and settling into the feelings as they come up, as they start to surface and you're know, just softening into all of that, really. Um, I think that's really what he's talking about when he's saying leaning into the challenge. It's like, just start to gradually approach it in a way that, you know, in, in manageable portions. And I guess it's not really new, advice or it's not really like unknown wisdom but sometimes you reiterate the same things in different ways and it resonates with perhaps a different part of your brain and it just it sinks in it's like yeah maybe you have to hear it from a few different perspectives before something inside you clicks and it's like yeah okay I get that now it's an embodied thing it's not just a um a cognition it's like there's something that's actually embodied I feel that now um and my body's starting to respond and act out what it is that I know, um, which is where you really start rolling. That's a very good place to be. So yeah, leaning into challenges, good stuff. Don't let how you've identified yourself be you. This is also gold. Don't let how you've identified yourself be you. Um, and I think, I mean, we all do that, that we all tend to rally around like here's something that feels solid or solid enough or maybe it's just something I don't know some way of identifying myself maybe it's that I'm that I suck and that's the kind of person I am and so 
I'll use that as an identification. And then what my brain does is like it goes to find evidence to support that because I would rather be right than uncertain. Like this is something like I talk about a lot with uh, people I'm coaching with. It's like you, the brain really does try to find evidence to support what it is that you believe. You know, everybody has those kinds of biases and those biases may be serving your, they may not be serving you. And if they're not serving you well and your life is quite miserable, that's really something that might be worth paying attention to. It's like, where am I identified with a particular thing um, that I'm afraid to soften and lean into a little bit and really feel my way through so I can start letting it move bit by bit, letting it shift a little bit. And I think that's really, yeah, just a really valuable thing because there's the you that you are and if the you that you are is not having a good time then but you're not willing to give up the you that you are for the you that you could be which might be somebody who is having a better time then I don't really know what to say about that it's probably not very good it's probably not very good hanging on to the you that you are if you're a miserable you you know maybe that you needs a little bit of support and a little bit of attention and a little bit of acceptance so it can develop into the you that it could be um, that's another thing that often happens it's like you you look at the you that you are and you think okay well this is who I am and I don't like this so I'm going to try to get rid of that and force that me out of the way and that doesn't work because that just pushes it down into some other subconscious part of you that then comes back around in some grotesque manifestation some distorted shape and um yeah things don't go so well so um it's really valuable to lean into that you that you are and give it the support that it needs and I th he talked about this as well he talks about getting support it's like if you need help you can get help you know you can ask for help help is everywhere like help is all over the place even when it doesn't really feel like it but there is if you're willing to receive it which can be scary because that does mean that you the you that you think you are might end up being challenged and you might have to let go of some stuff because there's some stuff that's not working out so great for you um, but help is available and you know if you need it you should get it <laughs> because it's good I mean what are you gonna do you've got you've got your life here and then you don't know what happens after that. We don't really, we're not really sure of that. So if this was your one wild and precious life and you needed some help, it, you should probably do that. You know, you should probably get on and, and ask for it. That would probably be a good thing for you and for everybody else because, you know, then you might be, you might help yourself develop into a person that you really enjoy being. And if you develop yourself into a person that you really enjoy being, then that would be pretty great and other people might enjoy being around that person and so that would make your corner of the world a little bit brighter and uh well why not do that i don't know if you've got something better to do than that maybe i don't know what do i know i don't really know but anyway what i do know is that i really enjoyed that conversation with dr robert glover and i hope you enjoyed it too and yeah, if you have any feedback on that or if you want to get in touch about anything or ask any questions or what not, then you can do that. I'm available on channels, different channels. Uh, so yeah, get in touch and see what you think.
So yeah, just get in touch if you like. Um, if not, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Robert Glover. I certainly did, and um, yeah, it's great. If you have any questions about anything that he wrote, or if you want to visit his site, uh, we'll put the links in the description below. His book is well worth a read. I would recommend it for men and for women because it's not. Um, it's written for men, but it's not gender exclusive. It's like he tell he says that in the conversation. He's like it's really more about codependency, and it helps women to understand the what is happening to quite a few men, like the an archetypal pattern that is, um, let's say, possessing um, a big part of men in society at the moment, and um, what to do to remedy that and how to encourage each other to be more honest and support each other to um, step into potential selves and all of that, all of that good stuff. So, yeah, go out and read his book. It's great. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time and attention. I'll see you fairly soon. We have a couple of good interviews coming up soon, and that's about it. So thank you again, and I'll speak to you soon. Perception. Architecture. Radio.